I invite you to open with me this morning to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at a miracle that is unique from all the others. Now we've been walking so far through these different miracles Jesus was performing that are recorded exclusively in John's gospel. But this one stands apart from the rest because it's the only miracle recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. Now, this certainly should underscore the importance of this miracle. But we also need to understand what has taken place to to get to this place in John's gospel. You see, Jesus performed his last miracle in Jerusalem. We saw that last week, right? He goes to the pool of Bethsaida, and and there at the pool, he heals a man who had been lame uh, for 38 years. He didn't go to the temple. We made note of that. He he didn't go to the religious people. Instead, he went to this out-of-the-way place and performed this great miracle. And we also left off in verse 18 of chapter 5, and we saw that the persecution of Jesus was beginning to ramp up. It was beginning to intensify. We began to understand how Jesus eventually made his way all the way to the cross of Calvary. Now, as we look at the details covered in the other Gospels, and I'm not going to ask you to turn to those, and I'm not going to walk through those carefully, but what I want you to understand is, if we look at those accounts, we find that about six months had passed since the performing of this last miracle. Now, in John's Gospel, it seems that we're just moving on to the next thing, but a lot has taken place over the course of these six months, and we see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, Jesus had continued to perform many miracles. He was continuing to teach many. He had actually sent his disciples out for a teaching ministry of their own. And they had had time to return by this point. But here's what's important that we recognize as we get to chapter 6. Jesus had amassed quite a following. There were a lot of people following Jesus. There were a lot of people listening to his teaching. There were a lot of people following him because he was doing great things. Now here's why this is important. They were following him, at least many of them were, for some inappropriate reasons. And I fear that many of us today, if we're honest, many of you in this room this morning follow Jesus for inappropriate reasons as well. I think all of us are inclined to this at certain points in our lives. And so I want you to write this down. We desire a king who will provide but we need a savior who saves. Now here's what happens in chapter six. And I could read the whole passage to you, but we did that last week. And, and I, I just wanna walk you through the miracle and kind of summarize what's taking place here. So we get to the, verse one of chapter six and, and Jesus has this great following behind him and his disciples and he, they, they go to a mountain to pray, to be away from the crowd for a moment. But after they finished praying together and spending a moment together, they look down the hillside and they see this huge crowd of people that had gathered. And the scriptures say this crowd was about 5,000 in number when it came to just the men. So if you added women and children, we can kind of estimate here and say that this crowd was probably more like 10 to 20,000 people. This was not a small number of people on the hillside. And Jesus, he cleverly, he looks at Philip, one of his disciples, and he says to him, and you can look at it there in verses 4 and 5 if you want to. He looks at Philip and he says, he says hey, what, what are we going to do with all these people? I mean, they need something to eat. What do you think we ought to do, Philip? And Philip looked at Jesus and he says, well, man, listen. 
It's going to take eight months of living wage to feed everyone just a taste of food. He said, it's impossible logistically for us to feed this many people, Jesus. So then Jesus looks at Andrew. Andrew comes along and he probably had a smirk on his face when he said this. He says, well, Jesus, I've got this little boy here and he's got a sack lunch that he's brought with him. And he's got five loaves and two fishes. And, but, but Jesus, what in the world is that going to do with all these people? And I understand, I think we think of loaves as in like big, you know, like from Kroger in the deli, right? This big loaf of bread. Understand, this is like maybe frozen biscuits, okay? This is something really small. That's the word used here. And these fish, these two fish, that's not even big fish. These are like sardines out of a can. Like that's really what this little boy had. He had a sack lunch, maybe a snack. What are they among so many? And Jesus says, guys, just sit down here and have everybody else sit down on the hillside too. I'm sure this wasn't a small feat to get 10,000 people to just sit and wait. Their, their tummies were growling. They were anxious, no doubt. It was dinner time. And he has them all sit down. And his disciples come to him. And he hands them some food. He says, take it. Go, go give it to them. I'm sure they looked at him kind of strangely. It doesn't say that in the scriptures. But no doubt they looked at him and said, now, Jesus, wait a minute. If we feed one or two of these, the rest of them are going to be pretty upset he says, don't worry about it. Go on. Go feed those few. They go and distribute the food. They come back. He hands them some more food. No fanfare, nothing crazy going on. No fireworks are going off. Like this is just a really obscure miracle Jesus is doing off to himself. And he hands them more food and they go and distribute that food. Over and over again. I'm sure it took some time. They come back again and again and again. And before they know it, they look up and everyone has ate their fill. And then Jesus says something really strange. He says, okay, now I want you to take and go collect all of the leftovers. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of weird. Jesus has just fed almost 10,000 people, and he says, go collect the leftovers. And they go, and they begin to collect the leftovers. And it says there in the scriptures that they collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now, understand, these are not just small baskets, right, that you're hunting Easter eggs with. This basket, the word used here, is something more like the size of this tabletop in front of me. It was meant to carry a load. And, and they brought back 12 baskets just like that, flowing over with leftovers. No doubt a miracle had occurred. No doubt Jesus had proven once again that he was a miracle-working carpenter from Nazareth. With that in mind, would you stand with me? And I want to read to you verses 14 and 15, because these two verses really are going to control where we head with this passage. The miracle has just occurred. Listen to these words. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is so good. It's been a good day. We've enjoyed being in your presence and worshiping you. But Lord, as we open your word at this time, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word and the proclamation of your word. Let it change us. Let it grow us in faith. Lord, let, us, let it strengthen us as we go out into our community to proclaim your good news. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, do a work that only you can do. Anoint the proclamation of your word, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
As we look at verses 14 and 15, we see the people making a decision. They want to make Jesus king. They want to anoint him as their new leader. They want him to lead the charge, if you will. But in verse 14, we see them declare that he's also the prophet that has been promised. Now, we need to understand these key two, two key verses. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this account of this miraculous feeding is only mentioned, is the only miracle, rather, mentioned in all four of the Gospels. However, in these two verses, unique to John's account, we find this. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. It's going to be on the screen behind me. You see, the context of the proclamation in verse 14 comes from this very verse of Scripture. They knew this verse of Scripture. They knew they were looking for a Messiah. And listen to these words. Moses declaring to the children of Israel at that time, he says, The Lord your God, he will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And so they had read these words again and again and again throughout history. And so the pump was primed for them to see this person coming. They were looking for him. Now, I want you to see a few characteristics of how the people there that day, they got some things right about Jesus. They may not have gotten all of it right, but they got a few things right. You see, they saw Jesus as a better Moses. I want to show you five ways that's illustrated in just these few verses. The first way is this. We see it in verse 2. Jesus led a crowd just like Moses did. Look at verse 2 with me. It says there a huge crowd was following him. And so they looked at this huge crowd and they said, now wait a minute. This is, this is what Moses did. He led a huge crowd out of Egypt and they all followed Moses. Notice the second way though. Also from verse 2. The crowd followed Jesus because of his signs just as the Israelites had followed Moses. And so we find also that just as Moses performed these miracles back in Egypt, remember he, these things were called the ten plagues of Egypt? And they had instilled faith in God's people, and so they chose to follow him to salvation. In the same way, it says in verse 2, they were following Jesus because he had done many signs. But notice this third way they got it right. Jesus went up on a mountain with his disciples, just as Moses went up on a mountain with Joshua. We see that in verse 3. Very clearly it says Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. You see, these are details we read across quickly, but when they were sitting there watching all of this take place, again, they were looking for this promised Messiah. They were looking for this new and better Moses to come and save them. When they saw these things happening, they said, wait a minute, something special about this Jesus. Notice this fourth way. All these events, they occurred during the Passover festival which commemorated the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery. Notice in verse 4, this detail is given. It says, now the Passover, a Jewish festival, it was near. Again, that's a detail we read across quickly, but understand Jewish people had came to Jerusalem at that time to celebrate the Passover. Now the Passover, you may think of it something like the 4th of July. Right? We, we get together and we, we celebrate our independence. That's similar to what they're doing here at the Passover. They're celebrating their independence from Egyptian bondage. And so the pump is primed. The occasion is right. They're looking for this Messiah. And so this fifth thing that Jesus did really caught their attention. Notice this. Jesus provided nourishment for them just as God had worked through Moses to provide manna for Israel in the wilderness. 
Remember, there was a time, they would have certainly remembered this, where they were in the wilderness and they were hungry. And it was through Moses, their great leader, that God had provided nourishment. He had provided literal bread for them. And so when Jesus stood on the mountainside and he, he provided for them as well, certainly they began to see Jesus as this new and better Moses. They weren't entirely wrong. But notice this truth. They knew the scripture. And they knew their religion. But they missed knowing Jesus. They knew the scripture. The scripture was what pointed to all of this about Jesus. They knew their religion. That is what had brought them to Jerusalem at that time. And yet they still missed knowing Jesus. How do we know this? Look over at verse 66 of John chapter 6. This one little verse really makes this abundantly clear what was happening here. Jesus provided for the people. Then he was teaching after that. And then we find this ironic truth in verse 66. It says, from that moment, many of his disciples, they turned back and they no longer followed him. This was the miracle working Jesus they had been following all along. And yet, now they were leaving him because they missed him. They knew their scripture, they knew their religion, but they missed knowing Jesus. How could this happen? Some historical context brings some clarification here. Understand that the Jewish people during the first century, they were living under a harsh Roman dictatorship. Taxes had been imposed, property was stolen, families were fractured, and, and paranoid dictators were especially harsh towards any hint of an uprising. This is most evident in the beheading of John the Baptist, which is detailed in Matthew chapter 14. A deliverer was going to emerge, and they were looking for him. So when they saw this miracle-working carpenter from Nazareth, they were certain that they had found their warrior king. He could heal them. He could feed them. He could provide for them, and he could protect them. And yet, by the end of chapter 6, many abandoned him. Now, before we're too critical, I want you to take a moment and consider this about ourselves. We think we know this scripture as well. We may even read this scripture occasionally. I think we certainly know this religion. Being here in this room today is evidence of that for every person. We know what to do, when to stand, when to sit, and what to sing. We know when to give. We know when to pray. We know this religion. But I fear that many in this room today don't know this Savior. We desire a provider. We desire a protector. We desire our bank accounts to be filled, and we pray for that. When our loved ones are sick, we pray for his protection and for his healing. But when he asks us to follow him, we abandon him. In fact, I can think we could even say this, and this is not a stretch. I fear that many of us would rather Jesus be our president than our Savior. But friend, as Jesus teaches us in this passage, we must confess that when we want a king, we actually need a Savior. So let's ask, as we look back over this specific miracle, what Jesus is teaching here, we need to know who is this Savior. Who is this Savior? Who does he declare himself to be in this specific miracle? The first truth is made clear in verses 1 through 3. We find that he continues to work in obscurity. We find in verses 1 through 3, he, he goes to this desolate place, 
this out of the way place. Now we've already made note of this when Jesus was ministering among those in Cana. However, I think it's worth considering once again that Jesus is sticking to this same agenda. He continues to work in obscure and out of the way places. It appears that the people had even become accustomed to this because it says that they were following him to these out-of-the-way places. They weren't waiting for him to come to the religious center of Jerusalem any longer. No, they were following him to these out-of-the-way places. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, in the account there of the feeding of the 5,000, we find that Jesus and his disciples, they were gathered on the mountainside and they didn't even have time to eat because people were coming in such crowds. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 13 makes clear that Jesus traveled here to a remote place. That's the specific word used. And that the people had followed him on foot. Later in verse 15 makes it clear again that they were in a deserted place. Make note of this. We should be reminded that Jesus is still working. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't realize it, he is working. He is working in the mundane. He is working in the routine. When you go to that same job every day, guess what? He is still working in your life. When you gather for worship in this place routinely every single week, guess what? He is still working. He is working for his glory and our good. Whether that was on a deserted hillside in Galilee or in the midst of our seemingly insignificant life. Even here in Cave Spring, population 1,100 people, Jesus is working. But notice this also as we continue reading. We find that he invites us into intimate relationship. I want you to turn with me over to Matthew 14. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 14 beginning in verse 13. This detail is not included in John's gospel, but it really illustrates well what Jesus was up to at this moment. You see, in Matthew chapter 14, we find the retelling of the death of John the Baptist. Understand that Jesus was very close to John the Baptist. I did some research and digging and found that most likely Jesus was John's second cousin. They were close by family relationship, but also in the ministry they were about, they were certainly close. But we find this as we get into the scripture here. We find that John had just been beheaded. And notice in verse 13 what it says. It says, when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus got away because he was grieving. Now, I don't know about you. When you're walking through seasons of immense, painful grief, sometimes we just want to be alone, right? Sometimes you just want everybody to stop ringing the phone, stop sending the text messages, stop dropping by to visit. You want to grieve. That's what's happening with Jesus here. He steals away for this moment in his very busy life at this time, and he steals away just to grieve. And yet when they came to him, he didn't turn them away. In the midst of his immense grief, it says he still had compassion on them. He still healed them, and he still didn't send them away. 
Even in the middle of great difficulty, physical exhaustion, and even sadness, Jesus desired to be among the people. Don't miss this, friend. God's still just as busy today. He's holding the universe together. He's hearing every spoken prayer. But listen to this. The same God who holds the universe together still knows you, and he still invites you into relationship with himself. This miracle-working Jesus was never too busy for the people. He always invited them into relationship. He does the same today. But thirdly, we find that he teaches us what it means to follow him. He teaches us what it means to follow him. And we get, as we get down to, to verse 4 and 5, I want to be clear. Jesus did not need the help of the disciples to feed the crowd gathered on that hillside. He was perfectly capable then as he is now to do the work he desires to do without you and I. But notice what happens beginning in verse 5 down through verse 9. I want you to see this. Watch this. So when Jesus looked up, he noticed a huge crowd coming toward him and he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Verse 6 is critical. He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And so then Philip answered him in verse 7, 200 denarii, or eight months of wage worth of bread, wouldn't be enough for each of them to even have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Notice the logistical concerns they brought to Jesus. They made sense, and they were hung up on all of these. This extravagant cost of the food to provide. The barley loaves, understand that detail is included only here in John's gospel. Barley loaves were really the most mundane of all the breads you could eat. It's, what's the, it's what the poorest of the poor ate, and that's all they had. But his desire was to teach them what it means to have an abiding and steadfast faith, even in the midst of great obstacles. But like us, they needed to be reminded of, uh, of, this, of this many times. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9, we read these words. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says this, You have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Jesus reminds them and he reminds us that he is our provider. But finally, he provides for us sufficiently. He provides for us sufficiently. This truth is made plain in verses 12 and 13. We read there again and again that the people ate until they were full. Their stomachs were full, but so were their hearts. Understand there were also leftovers. They filled 12 baskets full of these leftovers. These weren't just table scraps. I reminded you of that a moment ago. The word used here is something more like a cargo basket. This is a lot of food they collected. They collected at the end of this miracle more than they started with. Jesus is always enough. He was teaching his disciples this again and again and again, but especially here in John chapter 6. So if this is who our Savior is, he paints this very clear picture that he is our provider. He paints this very clear picture that he is teaching us what it means to have a steadfast faith. He paints this very clear picture that he is inviting us into relationship with himself. If all of that is true, then finally we need to consider what does this mean for us if we follow this Savior? In other words, what are the implications for us 
What should be the fruit of our lives if we're following this Jesus? Again, be reminded, they were following him up until this point. And yet they missed it when it mattered most. They began to abandon him as he neared the cross. I believe there are four implications here. Number one, we live as citizens of another kingdom. We live as citizens of another kingdom. If Jesus is not the king that they wanted, he certainly must be a king in a different way. In John chapter 18, we find an exchange between Jesus and Pilate. This is just before Jesus' crucifixion. In verses 33 through 37, listen to this conversation. It says, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters. He summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, this was still the pivotal question even now, later in John's gospel. Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own? Or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I, Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests, they handed you over to me. What have you done? And listen to this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked, you are a king then, aren't you? You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into this world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus, in a very matter-of-fact way, he throws all of this back at Pilate, and I believe all of this back at us as well, that he is a king, but he's a different kind of king. Friend, our king traded an earthly crown for a crown of thorns. He traded an earthly throne for a sinner's cross, but he is now our resurrected king. He is seated on his throne, and he will be worshipped throughout eternity. He wasn't the king they wanted, but he certainly is our king. But notice the second truth of how this applies to us, the second implication. We should trust that his provision is always sufficient. Certainly there are times in our lives, every person in this room, perhaps even now for you, where you wonder how that next bill is going to get paid. You wonder where the food's going to come from to be on your table. But if we worship this Jesus, understand that in him we always have enough. This is why Paul could say these very words in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 13. He was writing from a Roman prison cell. He had been beaten within an inch of his life. Things seemed hopeless. And yet he penned these words of hope. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. And then this famous and often quoted verse, Philippians 4 and chapter 13 it is my life's mission to make sure we interpret this verse correctly. It's not meant to be plastered on the back of a football helmet or on the butt end of your bat. It has nothing to do with sports, in fact. These words, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying, I can be content because my strength comes from Jesus. Even in defeat, I know that he is my victor. 
We trust that his provision is always sufficient. Thirdly, we grow in relationship with him. We should be growing in relationship with him. I'm gonna go through these quickly, but I think it's important we listen carefully, as quick as this is gonna be, make note of how we grow. As we think about ministry here at First Baptist Church, as we make disciples, this is what we're teaching them to do. Listen to these words. We pray. We pray. We pray because he taught us to pray. We pray because we know that we can always intercede on behalf of others. We pray because that helps us grow in intimate relationship with him. But secondly, we read. We read his word. We read his word because this Jesus, he is the word. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. We read this word to know him. I made the accusation a moment ago that many of us probably don't know this Jesus. And it's probably because we don't spend any time in his word. Finally, we abide. In other words, we remain. We walk with him in good times and in bad times. Why? Because he tells us in John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine. And you are the branches. In other words, he says, I am the source of your life. Everything depends on me. And he says, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, I will produce much fruit in you because you can do nothing without me. But finally, if we know this Jesus, if these implications are true of our lives, if we've trusted him and chosen to follow him, this last one is critical. We go to those who do not know him. We go to those who do not know him. I think it's interesting that we find that the reason Jesus performed this very miracle was because he had compassion on the crowd that day. Certainly, Jesus and his disciples, they they could have left. They could have left the crowd there on the hillside and said, you know what, you guys figure this out. They could have saw the logistical challenges and said they were too busy for that and left. But Jesus performed this miracle. Jesus provided them for them because he was compassionate for them. Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5, Paul tells us there that we should adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. As he has compassion on others, so we should also. This is why we go. This is why when we know that there are those around us who need Jesus, those within our families, those that are our neighbors. Listen, we drop everything and we share this beautiful gospel with them. This is why on Sunday nights we're learning how to share our faith with others. It's because people need to hear. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Savior that we need. If Jesus had been the king that they wanted, we would not have the savior that we need. Certainly, he might have delivered them. He would have won their affections at that moment. He would have won an earthly crown. But we would not have the opportunity to wear a crown in glory. If he had ascended their earthly throne and foregone the place of Calvary, certainly he could have been their king then but we would not have an opportunity to gather around his throne in glory. Like the people in John chapter 6, who wanted a king but needed a savior, 
I think the same is true for many in this room today. What was the last prayer that you prayed to your Father God? What was your request? What need did you bring before him? I fear that many of us in this room, we stake our faith, our very faith, on him providing us for us as a king. Healing those around us who are sick. Filling our bank accounts. Paying the bills when they need paid. But if we have the Savior we truly need, those things really don't matter anymore. My plea with you today, as it is every single Sunday when I finish my time with you, is that you would know this Jesus. This Jesus who is your Savior. This Jesus who is the Savior that you and I both need.